Welcome to the podcast with all your mind, hosted by me, Rachel Grimm. We're here to help understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hi and welcome. This is Rachel and this is With All Your Mind. The purpose of this podcast is for a better understanding of the Bible by talking about the biblical languages, the history and culture of ancient Israel, and letting them help us understand biblical concepts. And that should help us get a better handle on what the Bible is and isn't, who it's for, what it says, and who it's from. This first episode will be a longer one, um, and the next one will be a shorter one, and we'll alternate lengths like that through the whole season. So if you're the kind of person that can't do 30 or 50 minutes, you know, just based on time or availability, try one of the shorter episodes. If you want to get deeper into topics, check out one of the longer ones like this one. So we'll hopefully be putting an episode up every week, but we'll see what happens. So I hope you guys enjoy and here we go. So I have thought about different ways that I should introduce what we're going to be doing in this podcast, but I'll start with the title, With All Your Mind. The idea behind that is that God commands us in Mark 12 to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that covers all the bases for how to love God. And as my little contribution to helping myself and others love God with their minds, I wanted to put out there through a podcast all the ways I know how to love God and know him more through the mind. I find it particularly helpful uh, to study the Bible and try to understand more about God and the Bible and the spiritual world and just everything I can surrounding the Bible and God um, because I find that, uh, of course, it helps my my relationship with God to know who he is and all those kinds of things without knowing who you're having a relationship with. There's no relationship. What I find it to be helpful with, and I'm hoping might be a part of how it's helpful for others is that the more information you have, the more you can act and know, and the less you can act on feeling. And I'm talking specifically about fear. I find that ignorance breeds fear. And the more information you have, the the right applicable information to what you need, the less fear you feel like you need to act on. And for myself particularly, and, and maybe for you, the it, I find it important to really push back against fear. I think we have a culture of fear. A lot of people act out of fear. Uh, We talk about FOMO, fear of missing out, and I think that's really pervasive. And there's other types of fears, just of loss of your normal, your way of life, uh, things that you're used to, those kinds of things. So I find it important for myself to just keep on studying and keep on knowing and then keep on acting out of faith rather than fear. And we have to know what we're having faith in, and that is God in the Bible. If we don't understand either of those, then <clears throat> there's not, um, you can still have faith, um, but it might be a little more easily pushed down. So we're going to dive into a lot of things about the Bible, a lot of 
or understanding biblical words and concepts better through partly one of the things that I love, language. I love doing word studies and understanding concepts through uh, understanding the language, but we're going to try and focus more on concepts and um, context for the Bible rather than just the language. Um, but we're going to start there. We're going to start with language because the Bible is a written document. It isn't a sensory experience. It isn't um, an emotional experience necessarily. It's a communication experience. It's a communication from God to us that's supposed to relay something and a lot of some things. Um, but we're going to start with language so that we can have a good basis for how to start. So I'm going to start off with saying we have a couple of um, drawbacks. I don't, I don't know what to call them. Maybe um, setbacks, drawbacks, just maybe hurdles to get over because of the Bibles that we have. And part of that is just that our, our Bibles, whatever one you read, is a translation. It's not in its original language. That means there's going to be a little bit more difficulty with understanding what's going on. Another difficulty is that the Bible was written 2,000 plus years ago. It's in a very different historical setting, very different cultural setting. Um, that and none of us are really totally familiar with. We're, we're familiar with Bible stories if you grew up in the church, but that's different from knowing how life was done 2,000 or 3,000 years ago in what is called the ancient Near East. So we're going to work on those things. But God knew that it would be this way. God knew that we would be reading our Bibles in translation and not in the original language. He even had it that probably Jesus was reading in a translation. Jesus wasn't necessarily reading his Torah, his Hebrew Old Testament, in his mother tongue. So don't stress about it. Don't worry about it. We're all in the same boat together with G with Jesus. All right. So let's start off with talking about what languages are used in the Bible. And then we're going to move on from there and we'll get to other stuff in future episodes. But for now, three languages in the Bible. The Old Testament was mostly written in Hebrew. The New Testament was almost completely in Greek. And there are little chunks that are in Aramaic. Uh, yeah, Ezra and Daniel in the Old Testament. And then just a sprinkling of words in the New Testament are in Aramaic. But Aramaic was the spoken language of many of the people of the New Testament, especially many of the people that we encounter in the New Testament. So we're going to go through each of those languages and talk about them a bit and about any kind of implications that any of them would have. So Hebrew, first up, Hebrew is the language of the Jews and of Israel. Um, it is the language of the Old Testament. Nearly the entire Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And just to make a distinction, it's the language of the Jews and of Israel and of the Old Testament. That does not necessarily make it God's language. Um, because the Jews spoke it, we sometimes think of it as the original language of the earth. And that's, we, we don't know if that's true. Uh, we don't know if there was another original language. 
Um, but Hebrew is a natural language. It is not some super holy language that isn't related to any other languages on the earth. If you've never studied languages or linguistics, it's good to know that languages develop from each other. Um, English, for instance, is an Anglo-Saxon language, right? If you're, if you're white, we often say Anglo-Saxon. What does that mean? Well, the Angles were people in Britain and the Saxons invaded the Angles um, from continental Europe. We are actually, a, English is a Germanic language. It is most related to German and more, but from further back, so it's not a direct correlation to modern German. Um, but we also have lots of influence from Greek and Latin so that we know um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. But basically, you can you can watch the history of languages and how they merge and how they mix and all these kinds of things like, um, oh man, there's just all sorts of things that I could tell you. The word, any word that has K-N, like knife, is a German word. But any word that starts with a C, but it sounds like an S, like city and civic, that comes from Latin. There are characteristics of languages so that when you are looking at a language, you can see characteristics and you can kind of tell its history a little bit. Hebrew is no different in any, in any sense from all of those things that I just said. It's a natural language. It's not a unique language that's different from every other language on the earth. It's not a tongue. It's a Semitic language. That is a language group, language family, and in this sense, there are only three major uh, language groups, and one of them is Semitic. That comes from Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem, Semitic. Semitic just means that it is one of the languages that descended from Shem. So many, many descendants from Shem, many, many languages eventually came out of those peoples. There are other Semitic languages, um, and you have probably not heard of most of them. A lot of them died out, um, but there are still uh, Semitic languages in Northeast Africa. Ge'ez, um, I forget if that's in Ethiopia or Somalia, but there's Somali languages. Ethiopic languages, and Aramaic, one of the other languages in the Bible, is another Semitic language. So Hebrew and Aramaic are very similar. Um, they're basically like sister languages, very similar um, in the way that, say, French and Italian are very similar, or Spanish and maybe Portuguese are very similar. Um, if you know one of them, the other one is very easy to understand, even if you can't speak it yourself. That's how uh, Hebrew and Aramaic are. Hebrew is also related to Arabic. Um, one of the so my husband and I lived in Israel for a year, and uh, so I had been studying Hebrew before that, modern Hebrew. And maybe in another episode, we'll talk about the difference between modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew. There is a difference. It's not huge, but it is substantial. But um, when we came back from that, after living in Israel, speaking in Israel in Hebrew for a year, 
I came back and started teaching English to college students, um, international students at Susquehanna University. And um, most of my students were Saudi Arabian. And so I had them teach me some some Arabic. And I'll tell you, some of the things were, were I don't know if to, whether to say it was really easy or really hard because it was so similar to Hebrew that it was really easy to get confused about like, oh man, is that Hebrew or is that Arabic? And um, so, you know, you can say some things in Arabic and my ears will perk up like, what, what, what did you just say? Because it's related to Hebrew and it, and it just sounds this similar to me. And I'm like, did I understand that? <laughs> so th- some little things I can understand, but not a lot. Um, so Arabic and Hebrew are related. Um, so just, just to put that back into a perspective, Hebrew has a place in world languages. It, um, is a natural language. It definitely has this very special case history, um, because it's one of very few, if maybe the only language from ancient times that has survived, even though it did not have a nation, um, in place to preserve it. It was preserved through tradition, through the Bible. Um, So it's a very special case history. It's a very unique story about it, but it is not a unique language in its origin, in its, um, its context, or how it's related to other languages. Um, Another fact about Hebrew, just to show how it's a natural language, We know the Jews were set apart by God. They're his chosen people. Um, They were supposed to be a priesthood um, to point other people to God and show them what God could do as a a God to a people. Um, and, And we know that they failed pretty badly at that. But um, when thinking about them in that context, I think I at least used to think of them as being very, um, well, special, very set apart, holy, right? What they were supposed to be. And so I guess I always imagined without realizing it, that their culture and their language would have been set apart and holy and preserved as well. And that's very much not true. How um, So an example of that is the word for sun in Hebrew is the word Shemesh. And Shemesh is the name of a pagan god, a Canaanite pagan god. The same, the word for moon is Yoreach. It is also the name of a pagan god. And I think it's also a Canaanite pagan god. So there are traces of pagan culture or pagan religion even in the language of the Jews. So if you ever think, oh, it's ruined, it got tainted by something, Hebrew is tainted. Its, its culture was tainted. There is no special um, little glass case that Hebrew got put in to preserve it from any weirdness or pagan influences. It's the same way in any language. Um, sometimes... Um, People try to preserve their language or their culture or their experience from any kind of pagan influences. You might think of this um, (laughs) 
through different decades when different books or um, cultural influences came around like Harry Potter and the the Christian church just got up in arms about ah Harry Potter you know and it's and I don't know what effect it's had but think about this our our language is very much tainted by pagan religion um an example if you think about the days of the week I think every single day of the week is named after a god or something that could be a god. Sunday, day of the sun. Monday, day of the moon. Tuesday, I don't know what Tuesday is. Wednesday, Wotan's day. That's a Nordic god. Thursday, think about Nordic gods that you might have known about in a movie. Thursday, Thor's day. Friday, I think that's another Nordic god, but I don't know what it is. And then Saturday, uh, I don't know that one either. Um, I'm going through the months of the year. They're just named after, I don't think they have pagan, pagan influences. But we have a ton of stuff in our culture that is has pagan origins. That doesn't make it satanic. That just shows that our... Um, culture is influenced by the world and the Hebrew language is too all right all right so Aramaic going on to Aramaic is related to Hebrew like I said a sister language very similar Um, if you were to look at them without having studied either one of them very much they would look almost identical they have the same alphabet Um, They're both written right to left. Uh, They have similar vocabulary, similar pronunciation, similar grammar. Everything is pretty similar. So that if somebody uh, were speaking in Aramaic, a Hebrew speaker would understand. And they could talk back and forth in their own languages and understand each other just fine. Maybe a word or here, here and there would be like, wait, what did you say? Um, But they could get by just fine. Uh, So where do we see Aramaic in the Bible? Daniel has about, I think, five chapters in Aramaic. And Ezra has about three chapters in Aramaic. And the reason for that is that Aramaic was the trade language of Babylon. And Daniel and Ezra are in the Babylonian captivity. So they are writing... I think um, Ezra at least was writing to somebody that would have been speaking Aramaic. So he's not going to write to them in Hebrew because they may not have even known Hebrew. He was writing to them in their language in Aramaic. In the New Testament, so that's all we have, by the way, in the Old Testament in Aramaic is uh, those two books, Daniel and Ezra, just portions of them. And then in the New Testament, we have just a sprinkling of words here and there where you see Abba Father in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, and Paul uses twice Abba Father. That word Abba is Aramaic, so it's just preserved as Aramaic in our Bibles. And then, depending on your translation, I'm not sure which translation has it, but mine does, I think. Um, when Jesus is on the cross... And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
Um, Some Bibles will have it in English. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is in Aramaic as well. So we just have some phrases and words in the New Testament in Aramaic, not whole passages. So why and how uh, was Aramaic used? Um, Well, Aramaic was a trade language, meaning um, empires used it from about 500 BC all the way up until 500 AD, a 1,000-year span of time when it was the language that you could do business in all through the ancient Near East, which is what we would consider the Middle East or uh, Turkey, Greece, um, Israel, Egypt, um, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, even as far as Iran, all of that whole region, um, Aramaic would have been understood as a trade language. And if you're not familiar, trade language is a language that people learn, even if it's not their own language, because they know they'll be able to do business in it. So English today is our trade language. If you travel to mm, anywhere practically in the world and you don't know the language there, the native language, you'll know that you can probably get by pretty well with English. You might get ripped off because you won't know. (laughs) This happened to us a couple of times when we were traveling. That we got ripped off because we couldn't read the signs in the native language. Um, to know exactly how much we should be spending for that sandwich. And then somebody just told us what the price was in English. Um, And so we probably paid double for that sandwich. But we could get a sandwich, right? You can get a hotel room. You can get a taxi. You can find the train station if you know English. You might get ripped off. You might not be able to build deep relationships But that's not what a trade language is about. A trade language is about getting stuff done. So Aramaic was a trade language, a common language, all across the ancient Near East from 500 BC to 500 AD. It was the trade language of, and I'm going to name off a series of um, empires. Let's see, it starts with Babylon. And Babylon conquered uh, the southern tribes in 586 BC. So they were using it then. So Babylon, uh, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And I think there was one other one in there. But um, they all used Aramaic as their trade language. It just worked. It, It was convenient. Everybody already knew it. So they just kept on using it as a trade language. Um, So Hebrew went out of common usage for Israelites and Jews during and after the Babylonian captivity. It became the language of the Jewish religion used in the temple, in the synagogue. Um, The Bible was still written in it. Um, There are prophets that came after the Babylonian captivity, but it wasn't used in an everyday sense of how you would buy vegetables at the store. You know, can I get three carrots, please? You wouldn't use Hebrew anymore for that. They had been conquered. Other empires had rolled in and their political system needed Aramaic. 
And so people would just naturally start using this because they had to. And then eventually might just kind of pigeonhole Hebrew as the the temple language, the language of the Bible, the language of our forefathers, but wasn't necessarily used for everyday um, activities and just talking to friends. Um, but now you might be wondering, okay, but what is Aramaic and where did it come from? It's the language of the Arameans. Um, and, oh, here's another one, Assyrians. The Assyrians also used it as their trade language. So it started off with one group of people using it as their language, and it just became a useful language to do business in. And so that's what happened. Um, it didn't die out as a trade language until Arabic became much more common, and that was around, again, 500-ish A.D., um, so I think that's most of the things that you would need to know about Aramaic. It's very similar to Hebrew. It was a trade language. Um, there's a, a little bit of a debate, but not so much anymore of did Jesus speak Hebrew or did he speak Aramaic? And the, um, the common consensus is that he spoke Aramaic and knew Hebrew too. He would have talked to his mom, to his disciples, and probably to even God the Father in prayer in Aramaic. He would have used Hebrew when debating with the Pharisees, maybe. Um, when reading the scroll of Isaiah when he was in the synagogue. Um, what language he, was he reading in there? Uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. Uh, might have been Greek. Um, but Hebrew was what the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh or the Torah, would have been written in. So people that really wanted to study the, the Bible as it was to the Jews would have needed to know Hebrew. And they would have known it maybe in a similar way that Catholics would have known Latin before Vatican II. They would have understood maybe passages uh, had prayers that they knew in Hebrew, but it was a very formal kind of language to them because it wasn't used for everyday speech. All right, so we're going to move on to Greek. Greek, what do you know about Greek? Well, it's definitely the language of Greece. Uh, that's where it originated. And in ancient Greece, different city-states, because Greece wasn't a unified country until much later, Different city-states had their own dialect. The Attic dialect was from Athens. The Ionic, you remember the Ionic columns if you studied that in high school? The Ionic um, dialect was from Smyrna. And even to this day, Cyprus has its own dialect of Greek. So um, the Greek Empire well, Alexander the Great was the one that kind of solidified the Greek Empire beyond the borders of Greek actual, <laughs> as we could say. Um, but he spread it as a new trade language in the 300s BC. So when was Aramaic? 500 BC to 500 AD. Greek overlapped with that time. 300 BC until I think at least two or 300 
AD, Greek was used as another trade language. So if you knew Greek and Aramaic, you could get by in most of the Greek empire, which was all of those countries that I listed. You could get by really well in all of those places. Uh, so Greek was the trade language in Palestine because of the Greek political system. Um, but the Romans used it too after they conquered. And why did the Romans use it? Because they had Latin. Why should they use Greek? Well, everybody already knew it. They had to spread Latin and that hadn't happened yet. Now there's a particular Greek dialect that was being spread as this unified common Greek language and we call it Koine. It's spelled K-O-I-N-E. Koine Greek. And this was the common, and we call it common, um, this was the widespread Greek dialect. We, we mentioned all of those different Greek dialects. This is the one that kind of made it, that kind of became more common than the other ones. And scholars really didn't know much of anything about Koine Greek until the 1900s. They knew about Ionic Greek. They knew about Attic Greek. They knew about all these other dialects. And there's lots of Greek literature, right? Uh, Homer wrote in either the 800s or the 900s BC. It was well before Jesus. He wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those are massive, and those that's where <laughs> the word epic came from. They are epics. They're big, huge stories. And I don't know what dialect that was written in, but it was not Koine. And so people who read literature and studied these ancient languages knew a lot about other dialects, but they didn't have much of anything in Koine Greek, and Koine is what the New Testament is written in. So when studying the New Testament, scholars had no idea, okay, this looks like other kinds of Greek. Um, there's similar language. We know it's Greek, but we've never seen this before. There just wasn't other, other manuscripts or other novels or um, tablets or anything that they found with Koine Greek in it. And so they really wondered if Koine Greek was this special divine language uh, that God gave to the New Testament writers to write the New Testament with. Like, if we can't find it anywhere else in history, what the heck is this language about? And it wasn't until they found manuscripts in Koine Greek right around the turn of the century. I think it was like the 1880s or 1890s when they found a whole bunch of manuscripts and it was like these tablets that were just kind of like um, uh, inventory in marketplaces. Like they found really basic, really normal um, evidences of these languages. And then they realized, oh, okay, it's, it's just a dialect that we just didn't have anything from. Um, and so they, they started to get more and more information about the vocabulary and the ways that these, this phrase is used and that phrase is used because before that, they had to make some guesses. They had to kind of wonder if Paul made up a word for this particular thing. And then they found these manuscripts and they realized, oh no, 
Paul wasn't, you know, manufacturing words here. He was getting it out of the culture. This was just a very normal, this very normal vocabulary. So the example I like to use is the word axios. Um, in Paul's writings, he uses it to mean, and how we translate it is worthy, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, meaning live up to what God has asked you to do. Don't slack. Don't give up and roll over and play dad. Do it. <laughs> Very simply. So what does that word mean? Well, in the Greek marketplace, um, they would use scales to measure out goods and then they would have weights. And you put a five pound weight on one side and then you measure out the good, uh, whatever you're buying, barley, um, I don't know what you buy in a marketplace in, in, in Greece, but, um, frankincense or, uh, I don't know, gold, whatever you, you put a five pound weight on one side or however much you want to buy. And then you put more and more of that item, say barley on the other side until the balances are equal until it's balanced. And that's the word axios worthy. Worthy doesn't make sense with the word balanced. Like we tend to think of worthy as something to do with honor or um, worth. But, but if you think about the word worth with the word, what, what is this, uh, what is this couch worth? We're measuring in terms of money, but in their time, they would measure it with a weight. It is worth five pounds. That is a five pound, five pounds worth of food or barley or frankincense. So it still makes a bit of sense, but you have to kind of understand the context then and then translate it in your brain. So axios, it's not some special word that Paul came up with. It just meant balanced out. It means equal to, worth. So be be worth your calling. Live up to it. Um, so, so one of the problems that we might run into now, because there wasn't much information about Koine Greek before right around the turn of the century, 1900s, is that there are a lot of commentaries and books written by biblical scholars in the 1900s, in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that are, uh, what's the term? Open source now. That means that they're free. You can find them online. Um, they're easy to get um, because they're out of copyright. Nobody owns the rights to them because they existed before copyright law came around. And so these are the easy commentaries to get. And there were a lot of good biblical scholars at that time, too, specifically a lot of German ones. And uh, so because Koine was thought of as maybe this special divine language or tongue, there, there might be a tendency, and there is in some places and not so much in others, a tendency to overstate the importance of the Greek language that Greek was so special and so holy that um, it's divine. Um, and there might be, um, and obviously now we know that this is not true, but if you read a lot out of those commentaries, there might be, you might end up with this feeling that Greek is this very important language 
and it might have a secondary effect of pastors and non-scholarly sources overvaluing Greek, like kind of demanding that Greek um, be used to define certain words or that there's only one particular meaning that a Greek word can have. We all know that's not true in most languages, that it doesn't have just one very particular meaning. It's also the same in Greek. It's not a very specific, um, it, it, it's a biblical language, meaning it was used to write the Bible, but it's not a holy language. You have to separate those two in your head. So just to recap, Greek and Hebrew, not holy languages. They do not have spiritual meaning on their own. God used those words, those languages to write the Bible, but they're not holy on their own. Language is a conduit for meaning. It is neutral until we give it positive or negative value. It is neutral. Humans give it something different. Um, so when we talk about specific words and how they're more spiritual than other words, you have to be careful with that and really think about what are you, what are you actually saying there? Um, a story I have about that is that I was listening to Okay, it was a video, so I was, I was not watching it, but I was listening to it, of a pastor talk a little bit about, um, and, the, and the goal of what he was talking about was to talk about agape love. And so he, he started off saying that um, there are four words in the Bible to talk about love. And he started listing off, and you'll probably recognize them, agape, philea, storge and eros and he said and those are the four biblical words or yeah biblical words that's how he phrased it for for love in the bible and he was going to go on to talk about agape and <laughs> i paused it right when he started to talk there and i was like oh man i, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore because what he listed off are not the four biblical words for your love in the Bible. He listed off the four Koine Greek words for love in the Bible. And so that's true. They are the Greek words for love, but there's only three out of four of them that appear in the New Testament. Eros never makes an appearance in the New Testament. And there's a Hebrew word for love too. <laughs> that's a biblical word for love. And he, he was just talking about Greek. He was overemphasizing Greek in his head. Now, uh, think about this fact too. Agape love gets very emphasized as the most spiritual love, the most biblical love, because it's the unconditional love, the love that does good for others um, without necessarily needing emotion. And that, that's a good definition for love. But it gets overemphasized as the spiritual love, regardless of the fact that two other kinds of love are mentioned in the New Testament and are talked about as being necessary. So there's a multifaceted picture of love and to emphasize one Greek word to focus on at the expense of the others is not a biblical perspective. So 
Mm, keep that in mind maybe when you when you hear somebody talking about agape love yes agape love is a uh, a good picture of godly love but it's not a complete picture because there are other words in there for love too another um, part about greek that i wanted to mention is that pastors and theologians like to talk about greek why is that it's good to know why people do these things um, there's a very a couple of very practical reasons why they talk about Greek a lot. Uh, one is that Greek is much easier for English speakers to learn. There are similar words from roots that are common to Greek and English. We have some borrowed words that just sound very similar. Um, we're part of the same language family, the Indo-European language family. Uh, most of the languages in Europe are of the Indo-European language group. Uh, French, Italian, uh, Spanish, Portuguese. Uh, all of those are called the Romance languages. Rome, not romance as in romantic, but Rome, meaning Italian, meaning branching out from Italy. Um, we also get... You know, Germanic languages are Indo-European. We all have similar traits. Um, we share an alphabet, at least most of an alphabet. You know, the ABCs are very common to Indo-European languages. So the alphabet is more recognizable when you're looking at Greek. You can look at Greek and recognize some letters. A looks pretty much like an A. A B looks like a capital B in English. Uh, we have cultural familiarity through frat houses, <laughs> if nothing else, through frat houses. If you can think of any frat house that you've ever heard of and think of its name, I'm just going to pull out three letters and I don't know if they make up a frat house. Sigma Delta Beta. I don't know if that is anything, but you've heard those words, at least from movies, right? And those are Greek letters. You talk about Greek life, Greek letters. Those are Greek letters. So you've at least had some familiarity with them. Greek is just a more familiar language. It is close, more closely related to English than in some other languages. And we can draw parallels between the languages because of their similar structure. Um, yeah, so the way that Greek is translated into English makes sense because we can do it more easily. Hebrew, on the other hand, is much more foreign feeling. It is from a different language family. It's from the Semitic language family. It has a completely different alphabet. It's even written, quote unquote, the wrong way. It's written right to left instead of left to right. So left-handers rejoice because you won't get smudges on your hand. Or is it the other way around? <laughs> Either way, you know. Um, but so because it's in a different language family, there are fewer parallels in the structure, in the alphabet, in the grammar, and in the culture. It's a different culture. So it might make it seem like Greek has a higher standing simply because it's more studied. Pastors might be less intimidated by Greek, have more resources, or it might just be easier for them to learn. So... Greek tends to be more emphasized, more talked about, um, and it's just because of more, more access, more familiarity, and it just seems easier. Um, so when pastors, if pastors study 
a biblical language. They tend to study Greek. Hebrew is a far distant second if they study anything. And so it's just um, more commonly referenced. Not because it's more important, just because it's more commonly studied. Um, so now we're going to go on to my last little part here. And that is, what do we see in the English Bible? Oh, what's different and what makes it difficult? Um, it looks a little bit different. It sounds a little different from Greek and Hebrew because it was influenced by Greek and Latin spelling and grammar. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And, and we're almost done, guys. We only have a couple more minutes here. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but people shy away from the Old Testament and why? Well, it's dense, it's long, it's a lot of history, a lot of unfamiliar territory, but the New Testament just feels more familiar and light. And part of that, you know, is we have the face of Jesus in the New Testament, so we kind of finally, quote unquote, see God for the first time. And that makes it feel much easier to digest. But the culture, the context, even the location of the Old Testament feels more unfamiliar and it seems more familiar in the New Testament. And part of that is a false sense from how names have been changed. So just a couple of facts that will demonstrate this. All three languages that are used in the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, don't have the letter J. Okay, so you think about all the names that you've ever read in the Bible and how many of them have a J in it, okay? I'm just going to start thinking chronologically and go through Bible. Joshua, Jonah, uh, Jacob, jo uh, Joseph, Jesus, um, Judas, um, James, um, John, there's a lot of them, a lot of J's in the Bible, but none of those are original in there. And that's because the J came about in Latin and they just used J in Latin for spelling. It was actually a Y, but they spelled it with a J and still pronounced it as a Y. And then English speakers saw that and they're like, J, that's a J. We have a J. We know what <laughs> we know what a J does. And um, pronounced it as a J. But all of those J's are Y's in both in just everywhere. So Jesus, Judas, John, and James, their names don't start with a J. They don't pronounce them as a J. Another one that we need to change to see the original name is S on the end of a name. Jesus, Judas, Zacharias, and James all have S on the end. And that's from Greek um, grammar. So that came about because of Greek. So if we start to change around these names to make them sound more like their original names, how they would have been pronounced in the Bible, in biblical times, uh, Jesus, um, actually, let's start with Judas. If you take off that S, you end up with Judah. So it's a good guess that 
Judas was from the tribe of Judah. He was named after Judah or the tribe of Judah. Um, John, not with a J, Yohanan. Um, Jesus, not J, and not an S on the end, Yeshua. Um, Zecharias, that one's a little bit simpler, but you just take that S off. And I'm talking about Zecharias and Elizabeth in the New Testament. He was the wife, he was the, he was the wife, he's the father of John the Baptist. And Zecharias sounds very New Testament-y to me. <laughs> but you take off that S and he's Zechariah. I, oh, there's an Old Testament prophet by that name. Now he sounds much more Hebrew, much more Jewish to me. Um, James sounds very New Testament-y again. Um, his name is actually Yaakov. It's Jacob, which is a very Old Testament name to me. But his name is just the Greek version. Zacharias is the Greek version. Jesus is the Greek version. Judas is the Greek version. And you, with adding on that J, it's like the Greek version with a Latin twist. So all of these names have their Greek spelling and their Latin spelling, which makes them sound very much a part of our world, our language group, our culture, our context. But you change them back to their original names, how they would have been pronounced. Yeshua, Yehuda, Yochanan, Yaakov, Zechariah. I'm just going to keep them the same. Um, they sound like Hebrew names, and they are. Um, so there's this these little changes that can really change how things feel. It can make it feel more familiar and less familiar. And it can be more familiar because in English, we use the Greek and Latin versions of these names, not the Hebrew ones. Um, I have a friend, and if she's listening to this, hey, um, that she is Jewish. Her family moved to Israel, and they named their kids with Jewish names. And so their oldest son's name is Yosef, not Joseph. Yosef, because they're using the Hebrew version, not the Latin version. Um, and so these just tiny changes make things feel more unfamiliar. And language can change how we feel about things. We might feel more of a disconnect based on language. And so language has a big impact on how we feel. So it's, it's really good to know is there a disconnect because you are disconnected <laughs> or is there a disconnect because it's an unfamiliar context, an unfamiliar language? And I have a hard time sometimes connecting with characters in the Old Testament simply because I feel like I'm in such a different culture and it's hard for me to really connect. Language does that. It's not necessarily that they're in such a different place um, that we would never understand them and then we could never relate to them. I remember when I was in Israel and my husband and I were in Israel for a year and I had this friend, she was in my class, a couple of my classes and I just felt like I could just like chat with her and um, she invited us over to her house. We, we could never go because we, we had to leave the country before we could do it. 
But I just felt so totally comfortable with her. And she was Jewish. She was Orthodox Jewish, um, which means that she um, kept Sabbath, kept Shabbat. Um, She grew up in Israel. She had never lived anywhere else. Um, But that wasn't the point. It was like we could connect over other things. We could understand each other over other things. Culture doesn't have to be this big, huge barrier. And English was her second language. And Hebrew was definitely not my first. Um, But we could just like enjoy each other. And uh, you just have to be aware when language separates you and when it's just language that separates you. You know, you can think about different uh, stories in the Bible. Do you feel like you, you could know this person and hang out with this person? Or does it feel like, oh man, I could never understand that culture? It might just be the language and it's not, maybe it's not that they're so different from us. You think about any person in the Bible and you can probably think about positives and negatives of that person. Um, You think about Naomi. I keep on thinking about the book of Ruth and I keep on thinking, I don't think I could relate to Ruth, right? She always does a good job. She's always a hard worker. She's always respectful. She's always loyal. She's always faithful. I don't know if I can relate to Ruth, but I can relate to Naomi, right? She was bitter. She was upset. She was cranky. (laughs) Like, I get that. (laughs) So sometimes when there's a disconnect, um, that's a good thing to help us to realize, oh, this, there's something that's separating me from understanding this and it can be it could be helpful for us to remind us that we we don't know as much but then other times if there's a disconnect it might just be really something very simple that's keeping us disconnected such as how a name is spelled or pronounced and yeah I don't I don't so depending on if you're on the side of familiarity or unfamiliarity comfort or discomfort Sometimes God uses it both ways um, to get us to where we need to go. All right, so we'll talk about some other things in the next episode. We're going to talk about the names of God and how that influences things and that understanding of what that means about him and about us. And we'll, we'll probably talk about those next. All right, so I hope you guys learned something. I hope it was interesting. And I'll catch you the next time. Have a good one. Bye.